You're listening to Devils and Dirtbags. Season 1 is called Child Molesting Priests. Warning, this podcast deals with incidents of child sexual abuse and the brutal murder of a 13-year-old boy. Listener discretion is advised. Episode 1, The Suspected Murderer, Part 1. Before we get into the story of a child-molesting priest suspected of getting away with murder, I'm going to start with some disturbing numbers. At least 7,000 American Catholic priests have been credibly accused of sexually abusing at least 19,000 acknowledged victims. I'm going to say those numbers again. At least 7,000 priests, at least 19,000 victims, at least. That's according to data from the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops. This mind-boggling tally is tough to comprehend, especially since the numbers continue to grow. Another day, it seems, another Catholic scandal. This sort of data, though, is sterile. Analytically, we can't possibly comprehend the real-world impact of such daunting crime statistics. So, for the first season of Devils and Dirtbags, we're zooming in for a very close look at the stories of a handful of child-molesting priests from Springfield, Massachusetts, the city where I was born and raised. As you'll soon learn, the Catholic Church sex abuse scandal was pretty friggin' bad for the Diocese of Springfield, but also fairly representative of the plight of the average American diocese, which makes my hometown a suitable microcosm of the larger crisis, and also means similar stories of evil could be told about every single one of the 197 Catholic dioceses in the United States. Over the next 13 episodes, you're going to hear a true tale of deceit, homicide, molestations, and cover-ups. The actions of evil bishops and their unholy henchmen play out like a Hollywood movie, rife with death, destruction, and disgrace, all framed by a murder mystery that haunts Springfield to this very day. This saga is packed with hard facts, fueled by interviews and research and informed by case files, lawsuits, judges' decisions, news stories, and police reports. Throughout this season, via devilsanddirtbags.com, I'll be posting hundreds of pages of source material, including affidavits and victim statements, and I'll be posting never-before-published confidential memos written by the Springfield bishops that they never expected to end up in a public court file. 
let alone on devilsanddirtbags.com, including the proof the bishops destroyed their secret records in order to protect priestly sinners and the local church, and lied about it under oath and from their bully pulpits. For the record, I was never sexually molested by a priest. Pretty friggin' lucky, especially considering I personally knew five priests on Springfield's credibly accused list while serving as an altar boy from 1975 until 1982 at St. Matthew's in the city's Indian Orchard neighborhood. Their names? Father Charles Sullivan, Monsignor Timothy Leary, Father Donald Desolets, Father Michael Devlin, and the worst of the bunch, a priest I knew fairly well, who fed the teenage me lots of holy wine and cheap beer, a man I'm calling Father X, who molested at least five altar boys and was never arrested, punished, or placed on any sex offender registry. During the production of this podcast, I tracked down Father X and found him living in a bedbug-infested, subsidized apartment in a small New England city about 250 miles from my home in rural Maine. On a cold winter's night, I surprised my old pal and, using a bottle of 100-proof bourbon as truth serum, I convinced him to tell his tale of woe thanks to a hidden recording device in Episodes 7 and 8 You'll hear Father X, in his own words, try to explain his sordid history. You'll also learn the stories of other criminal priests, complete with tales of booze, drugs, guns, and suicide. And you're going to hear a lot about disgraced Bishop Thomas Dupre, who disappeared under the cover of darkness due to allegations He raped at least two teenage boys. And you'll hear many references to Bishop Christopher Weldon and his destruction of secret records. And just this year, in the summer of 2019, the diocese admitted that Weldon, who died in 1982, was a child-molesting priest himself, further soiling his legacy. Bishop Weldon ordained and supervised most of the child-molesting clergy we'll be discussing, including the most notorious of all the evil Springfield priests, Richard Levine, the sole suspect in the murder of an altar boy and the known abuser of over 60 children. And, as some studies have shown, only about 10% of male victims of sexual assault come forward, so Levine's actual victim count is more likely to be in the hundreds. The first three episodes of this season are focused on Richard Levine's crimes and are derived from court documents, police reports, victim statements, and affidavits from the case file of Danny Croto's murder, plus contemporaneous media reports expertly written by Tommy Shea, Brian Melly, Bill Zajac, and Stephanie Barry all very talented reporters working, at one time or another, for the Springfield Republican, the newspaper of record for Western Massachusetts. I'm also grateful to the anonymous author of Hell's Acres, the excellent blog about the seedy side of Springfield. In episode 11, we'll return to Richard Levine when I knock on his door 
to ask if he feels guilt for his many sins. And in episode 12, we talk to Danny Croto's youngest sister and learn how Danny's murder impacted her entire family like, quote, an atom bomb. On April 14, 1972, 13-year-old Danny Croto was savagely beaten to death under a bridge a little more than a mile from my childhood home. I was only four years old at the time, so I don't actually recall the killing, but it seems like I've always known the story about a priest getting away with murder. Danny's death was remembered, especially by us altar boys, like an urban legend, except the tale of a suspected killer, a priest, escaping justice, was true. On the early evening of Friday, April 7th, 1972, Bunny Croto watched her son Danny fixing his tie in the hallway mirror. What are you doing all dressed up, she asked. The 13-year-old boy was wearing a knit shirt and a herringbone jacket with a fur collar. I'm supposed to be going with Father Levine, Danny answered, but I haven't been able to get him on the phone. Oh, his mother said, well, you look very nice. Father Richard Levine, spelled L-A-V-I-G-N, E was a longtime family friend who'd recently been transferred away from the Crotos Parish, St. Catherine of Siena. He often took Danny places, sometimes in the company of Danny's four older brothers, camping trips, movies, overnight stays, and other adventures. But ever since his transfer to St. Mary's Church, the priest had mostly been bringing Danny on solo outings. Bunny was grateful Father Levine had such an interest in her youngest son. Number five of seven children, she felt Danny benefited from the extra attention. The family's brick ranch house on Ferncliff Ave and the working-class 16 Acres neighborhood was always bustling and busy, so she appreciated having one less kid to worry about. A couple hours later, Bunny realized Danny wasn't home. Must have connected with Father Levine, she thought. She shook her head. He should have told her he was leaving. She'll have to talk to him about communication again. At 10.30 p.m., Mrs. Mary Bobick, a nurse, was getting ready for the night shift at the Westover Air Force Base Hospital when she heard a knock on her front door. When she opened the door, she was surprised to see a nice-looking young man with strawberry blonde hair and blue eyes, wearing a herringbone coat with a fur collar. Can I help you? I'm sorry to bother you, ma'am, Danny said, but I'm lost. Contrary to his mother's belief, Danny hadn't reached Father Levine on the telephone. Not yet. After leaving home on this cold and windy night, he hitchhiked to the Eastfield Mall then caught a ride to the neighboring city of Chicopee in the hope of making his way to Father Levine's parents' house on Edward Street. Instead, he ended up on Mrs. Bobick's doorstep on Granby Road, about a half mile from his destination and over five miles from home. I was looking for my friend Father Levine, he said. I was wondering if I could use your phone. 
Certainly, she said, opening the door and inviting the boy inside. I'm about to leave for work. I could give you a ride somewhere if you like. No, thank you, he said. Father Levine will pick me up. She led him to the phone. Danny dialed the number. When the other end picked up, he asked, Is Father Levine still there? Mrs. Bobbick returned to getting ready. A minute or two later, Danny thanked her and then went back outside to wait at the end of her driveway. Within five minutes, a red Mustang arrived. Danny climbed in, and the car drove off into the night. It was half past 11, Danny still wasn't home, and Bunny was worried about her son. When the telephone rang, Bunny answered immediately. Hello? Bunny, it's Father Levine. Oh, Father, is Danny with you? Yes, yes, he is. That's what I'm calling about. Would it be okay if he spent the night at my parents' house? We're over here in Chicopee, and it's getting late. Of course, Bunny said. I was just getting worried. Sorry it's so late. You know, time flies. Yes, Father. I'll drop him off in the morning, after he's had a nice breakfast. The next morning, Father Levine dropped Danny off in front of the house and sped away, which was strange, since he'd usually come in for a quick hello, maybe even stay for a cup of coffee. Not this morning, though. Danny was acting strange. First thing he did was head to the toilet and throw up several times. Then he went to his bedroom and slept away the rest of Saturday. One week later, Friday, April 14, 1972, Danny was in a good mood. School was over and the weekend had begun. The next morning, at sunrise, was the official start of fishing season. Danny loved to fish more than anything, and Springfield had many lakes, rivers, ponds, and streams for him to pursue his favorite pastime. That afternoon, Danny had skipped the school bus and hitchhiked from Our Lady of Sacred Heart to Ferncliff Ave, much faster than the yellow bus. Plus, he liked hitchhiking. And once he got home, he briefly joined a kickball game before his mother called him inside to help her move some rugs. Where's your necktie? she asked. You better not have lost it again. No, Mom, he said. It's in my coat pocket. Well, go change your pants and shirt. I don't want to be scrubbing dirt out of your school clothes. Then Bunny got distracted. It often happens in a family with seven kids, so no one noticed when Danny left the house. We do know that around ten past four, one of his pals, a paper boy out delivering the afternoon edition of the Daily News, walked with Danny for a little bit. Then Danny headed in the direction of Wilbraham Road toward the center of 16 acres and the Friendly's Ice Cream and the A&P Shopping Center. A couple hours later, someone supposedly saw him at Giovanni's Pizzeria. Then maybe he was spotted standing in front of the grocery store. And that was the last reported sighting of Danny Croto alive. The spot next to the Chicopee River, under the General Robinson Bridge, was a fishing hole, a lover's lane, and a place to party. 
1972, cars could easily follow a wide path, an unofficial turnoff from East Main Street, to access the land beneath the bridge, between the giant cement buttresses, to the spot where Danny and his soon-to-be killer stood on that chilly mid-April evening. Highway traffic on Route 291 rumbled overhead, thunderous, too loud for anyone to hear any screams. The killer had another huge advantage. Danny was drunk, very drunk, especially for a 13-year-old. There was a brief scuffle and punches were thrown, but the murderer was tougher and bigger. At one point, he choked Danny. Not enough to kill the boy, but enough to hurt and leave marks on his neck. Then the killer grabbed a rock and bashed Danny's head. Once, twice, three times, four, maybe five, hard enough to fracture Danny's skull and lacerate his brain. Hard enough to kill. For several moments, the murderer stood there, breathing heavily, while blood pooled beneath the motionless boy. Then the killer grabbed Danny by his ankles and dragged him 83 feet, without stopping, all the way down to the water's edge, and heaved Danny into the Chicopee River, assuming the current would float the body away from the scene of the crime and towards the rocky Chicopee Falls two miles downstream. The murderer returned to his car near the puddle of Danny's blood. He backed up, turned around, then sped away into the night. Danny was stuck in the shallows of the Chicopee's South River Bank. Ignored by the current, his body remained near the shore, while his blood mixed with river water. Around 9.30 p.m., Danny wasn't home, and Bunny was worried. She dialed Father Levine's phone number. Hello, Father, it's Bunny. Is Danny with you? No, the priest replied. I haven't seen him. Oh, well, he didn't show up for dinner, so I thought that maybe... Bunny's voice trailed off. At first, she thought this was a replay of the week prior, when Danny had pulled a similar disappearing act that turned into a sleepover with the priest. If I hear from him, I'll call you right away. Thank you, Father. Hanging up, she turned to her husband, Carl Sr. Maybe you should go for a drive around the neighborhood. Okay, Carl said. And I'll check out his favorite fishing spots, too. He could be scouting locations for tomorrow. It was Bunny's turn to drive around 16 acres. Crazy with worry, she needed to do something. Carl Sr. was at home trying to sleep. He had a long day of work ahead of him. Her many phone calls made her even more anxious. None of the neighbors had seen Danny, nor had his scoutmaster, and the police were no help. 
Danny couldn't be reported missing, they told Bunny, until he'd been gone for 12 hours. So Bunny cruised his usual haunts. Friendly's ice cream, Giovanni's pizza, the A&P, the House of Television parking lot. No Danny. Then she headed towards the Eastfield Mall, searching, hoping, praying. She drove and drove up and down side streets, across parking lots, and by the fast food joints. No sign of her Danny. Finally, exhausted, she returned home and joined Carl, who hadn't been able to sleep. Together, they sat and prayed, prayed for Danny, prayed for the telephone to ring. At 2.11 a.m., when they couldn't wait any longer, Bunny picked up the phone and called the Springfield police to report her youngest son was missing. At daybreak on Saturday, April 15th, the first day of fishing season, Carl resumed his search for Danny. First, throughout 16 acres, then another round of the fishing holes. No sign of the boy. At 8 a.m., despite his tremendous worry, Carl had to head to his job at the Springfield Housing Authority. Nothing more he could do other than pray to the Lord and hope Danny showed up soon. About the same time Carl arrived at work, a fisherman parked his car on East Main Street, going to try his luck under the General Robinson Bridge. He spotted Danny before casting his first line. The man ran back to East Main Street and jumped into his vehicle, looking for a cop to flag down. At 8.25 a.m., Patrolman Burl Howard of the Chicopee Police Department radioed headquarters. The body of a young person was discovered floating face down in the Chicopee River. Within minutes, a half dozen officers were on the scene. Captain Edward Rajowski was in command. Lieutenant Edmund Redwanski took soil samples and helped Lieutenant Keith LeMay measure distances from various key locations. Officer John Ramos started making plaster casts of the tire tracks and the footprints, while Lieutenant Francis Sacavino photographed the entire crime scene. Other officers scoured the riverbank, searching for clues. Unfortunately, these cops were not skilled forensic technicians, even by 1972's primitive standards. And it was a Saturday, so the trained specialist with the state police headquartered at the other end of Massachusetts, had to be called in to work and wouldn't arrive until late afternoon. Until then, the bumbling locals were in charge. Danny's body remained floating in the Chicopee River until 9.05 a.m. when the medical examiner arrived. Then his corpse was removed from the water and placed on the riverbank. He was wearing a tan suede zipper jacket, the left pocket torn off and missing. The right pocket contained a student dissection kit in a small wooden box, a blue necktie, and a seventh grade test paper from the Our Lady of Sacred Heart School, known as Olsh, located in the Pine Point neighborhood of Springfield, about four miles from the bridge. The paper was soaked with river water, but the captain 
could easily read the name at the top of the page, Daniel Croto. Back at the station, the captain telephoned the Olsh convent and spoke with Sister Helen Elizabeth, the school principal, who confirmed Danny Croto was a student and provided his home address and phone number. Then the captain checked the telex report of missing persons and learned that at 2.11 a.m., Springfield police received a call from Bunny Croto reporting her 13-year-old son missing. Via radio, the captain dispatched Lieutenant LeMay to Ferncliff Ave to speak with the Crotos. The cop's first question to Bunny was, has Danny returned? Bunny was so upset she could barely dial Carl's work telephone number. The police are here, she told Carl as soon as he picked up. Danny is in some sort of trouble. Carl rushed home and Lieutenant LeMay asked to speak to him privately. That's the way the cops worked in the early 1970s. They preferred to break bad news to the male spouse. So Carl learned of his son's death while sitting in the back seat of the squad car parked in his driveway. Then he went inside to tell his wife. She could see the anguish in his eyes. Bunny knew her Danny was dead before Carl could speak. By 1.30 p.m., the autopsy of Danny's body had begun, conducted by a forensic pathologist from Boston and the medical examiner. Three cops were in attendance, the main investigators, Lieutenant Redwanski of the Chicopee Police and Lieutenant James Fitzgibbon of the Massachusetts State Police were there to observe. Lieutenant Sacavino took photographs. The cause of death was easy for the doctors to determine. Multiple blunt force trauma wounds on his fractured skull, resulting in bone shards piercing his brain. There were also multiple cuts and bruises on his face, plus Danny's jaw was broken. And his neck was injured as well, with bruises suggesting the killer attempted to strangle him, but failed. On his right thigh, the medical examiner noted a one-inch by four-inch bruise, like someone had grabbed him there and squeezed real hard. But the brain injuries were what killed him. And the location of the strikes to the skull indicated the killer was probably left-handed. Danny Croto came to his death, the medical examiner's final report explained, as the result of homicide. Noting the scent of alcohol, the medical examiner suspected Danny was intoxicated. Blood and bile tests would take a couple of weeks to confirm that. The autopsy report noted the stomach contained, quote, many chewed portions of candy gum. Late Sunday afternoon, Lieutenant Redwanski was back under the General Robinson Bridge. Standing between the two massive cement bridge supports, the lieutenant tried to visualize the actions that ended Danny's life. Above, the bridge traffic of Route 291 rumbled. 
He walked over to where the pool of blood had been discovered, exactly 16 feet south of the northern bridge support. Nearby, there were signs in the sand of a scuffle. And from that spot, it was clear that Danny's body was then dragged 83 feet to the river's edge. The tagged and bagged evidence collected by the crime scene team wasn't much. A bloody rock, the pooled blood, and the surrounding splattered soil, plus plaster casts of partial tire treads and some bits of trash from the shoreline where Danny had been dragged that possibly had been bled upon. A scrap of rope, an old drinking straw, pieces of paper, and cardboard all boxed up at the station house, waiting for a state trooper to deliver the evidence to the crime lab in Boston. Redwanski glanced at his watch. A little after four. Time to get back to the station. He'd spent the day interviewing Danny's friends and neighbors and now had a better picture of the victim. Thirteen and husky, about five foot four and 135 pounds. An enthusiastic fisherman, a good wrestler, an avid bike rider, and a great street hockey player. An altar boy at St. Catherine of Siena for five years. A friendly and nice kid who helped out his elderly neighbor on a regular basis in exchange for milk and cookies. Danny wasn't a scholar. He'd repeated a grade at Olsh, but he wasn't the worst student in his seventh grade class. And though his pal said he wouldn't take no guff, Danny didn't appear to have any real enemies, at least not in the schoolyard or in 16 acres. Investigators learned other things, too. In some ways, Danny was older than his years. A frequent hitchhiker, his friend said. He was seen hanging in a car with an adult male on a regular basis. Danny bragged to his pals that he knew a guy who would get him drunk. And, it was said, Danny may have tried smoking marijuana. Might even have been able to score some weed, too. Growing up too fast. Redwanski thought as he turned to return to his cruiser. He was surprised to see, about a hundred yards away, a man in uniform walking along the riverbank. Not a cop, though. A priest. The detective glanced toward East Main Street. He spotted a red Ford Mustang parked on the side of the road. Hello there, the lieutenant called out when the man was close enough to hear. I'm Lieutenant Redwanski of the Chicopee Police Department. I'm Father Richard Levine, the priest replied, approaching the officer. From St. Mary's, he pointed in the general direction of the church, just over the Springfield line, less than a mile away. I'm a very good friend of the family. Oh, nice to meet you, Father. Sorry it's not under better circumstances. As the two men shook hands, the cop studied the priest. Well-built, muscular, good-looking, with a receding hairline. It's so terrible, the priest said. I'm so very close to the family and knew Danny very well. I used to bring he and his brothers on trips, the whole gang of them. Father, I need to return to the station, but is there a chance you could swing by tomorrow for an interview? I'm sure your perspective on Danny and his family would be very helpful. Certainly, the priest replied. Hey, Lieutenant, you're going to want this message, the desk sergeant said as soon as he spotted Redwanski. From uh, Mrs. Mary Bobick. She lives at 675 Granby Road. Says she heard about the murder on the TV 
and recognized the photo of Danny in this morning's paper. Says a week ago, on Friday night, Danny knocked on her door and said he was lost. The sergeant looked at his notes. It was on April 7th, around 10.30 p.m. And the kid, Danny, she says, wanted to use her telephone to call his friend for a ride, a priest named Father Levine. Redwanski did a double take. Who? Levine, the desk cop said. The kid used the phone in the front hall to make the call, and she heard him distinctly ask, Is Father Levine still there? About five minutes later, a red Ford Mustang pulled into her driveway. That was that. She didn't give it another thought until seeing the photo in the newspaper. Here's her number. Thanks, Redwanski said, grabbing the slip and heading for his office. He needed to get Fitzgibbon of the state police on the phone. The priest deserved a much closer look. Good thing Father Levine was coming in for an interview. Carl Jr., Danny's oldest brother, was so friggin' sad. He couldn't believe his little buddy was dead. He wanted to get the son of a bitch who did it. Carl Jr. stood in the kitchen doorway, cycling from angry to numb, then back to angry. The whole scene was overwhelming. The Croto household had been extra chaotic in the two days since Danny's body was discovered. Friends and family, bearing food and condolences, were visiting in a constant stream. Danny's wake at Rattel's funeral parlor in Indian Orchard that morning had been heartbreaking. Everyone was in a state of shock. So many people had come to pay their respects to the family that the line of mourners snaked out the front door and onto Main Street's sidewalk for a whole block. Father Levine had stopped by and volunteered to take Carl's teenage brothers to the Eastfield Mall for a couple hours. His dad walked into the kitchen. At the same moment the telephone rang, Carl Jr. picked up. Hello? There was no response. Hello? He said again. This is a friend, said a voice that sounded vaguely familiar. We're very sorry for what happened to Danny, but he saw something behind the circle he shouldn't have seen. What? Carl Jr. asked. The circle was the nickname for the little park behind the 16 Acres Library where a group of tough local teens hung out, not Danny's crowd at all. It was an accident, the caller hung up. Who is this? Who, who is this? What's wrong, Carl Sr. asked. His son told him. Carl Sr. grabbed the phone and dialed the number for the Chicopee detectives. It was a little past three on Monday afternoon, and Father Levine was sitting in the Chicopee Police Department being interviewed by the detectives. What was Danny like, Lieutenant Fitzgibbon asked. He was a young 13, the priest told the state trooper, about 10 years old mentally. The detective made a note that was the first and only time in dozens of interviews with friends and family that anyone said anything about Danny being mentally impaired. When was the last time you saw him? The priest paused and wrinkled his nose. Uh, I think it was a couple weeks ago, on a Friday. Danny had called the rectory and then my parents' house, looking for me to see if he can get a ride. He was lost in Chicopee and needed a lift. Uh, about what time would you say this was, Father? Early evening, maybe around 7 or 7.30. And then? Well, I picked him up and brought him over to my parents' house on Edwards Street. He spent the night there, and the next morning I brought him home. And that's the last time I saw him. The priest's timeline was way different than Mrs. Bobbick's version. Are you sure of what weekend that was? Fitzy asked. 
Yes, most definitely. Two weeks ago. Granby Road is five miles from Ferncliff Ave, Fitzy said. Quite the walk. Oh, that boy hitchhiked all the time, over to Eastfield Mall especially. I wonder, have you spoken to James Coleman? Danny had taken up with him while he was researching his book. The police were aware of Coleman. He was a professor of physics at a local college and the author of a novel based upon the hijinks of the gang of teens who hung out in the park behind the library. The book was titled The Circle. We will be interviewing him, Fitzy said. That's good. He might be of help. Do you mind if I ask a couple questions? Go right ahead. If a rock was used as a murder weapon and thrown into the river, would the blood still be on it? Fitzy frowned. That was an unusual question coming from a priest. I'm not sure, he said. Several variables are involved. Oh, the priest said. Well, I was also wondering about the tire tracks and footprints. After all, under the Robinson Bridge is a very popular hangout. How could the prints you have be of any help? Not sure they are, Fitzy said. Just part of the evidence collection. Police procedure, you know. Fitzy paused. I have another question for you, Father. Could you tell me your whereabouts on Friday night? Of course, Levine replied. In the early evening, I, I ran errands with my mother, and then I spent the rest of the night at my parents' house. Hmm, the cop nodded. It's just that several times now, you've told us that whenever you spend time with Danny, it was always in the company of his brothers or, or other kids. But now you say you picked up Danny a couple weeks ago when he was lost in Chicopee and, and alone. So which one is it? Levine frowned. Most of the time, he said slowly, carefully. I saw him with his brothers, took them somewhere, or along with a group of other altar boys. The funeral mass began a little after nine on the morning of April 18th. The detectives had less than an hour to check the tires of all the cars in the crowded St. Catherine's parking lot. They were searching for treads that matched the plaster casts. They found 10 vehicles with similar patterns, nine from Massachusetts, one from Rhode Island. Fitzy wasn't happy. First of all, the plaster cast of the tire tracks were clearly done by an amateur, as was the rest of the evidence collection. He wished the state police's crime scene team had been involved in the initial investigation. Instead, the putzes from Chicopee did the job and screwed it up. That's his car, Redwanski said pointing to the red Mustang parked in the rectory driveway. The two detectives approached the vehicle, and Redwanski checked the treads. Not a match. Doesn't matter, Fitzy said. He could have borrowed another car, or even bought new tires, or those tracks are from another vehicle unrelated to the murder. The cop sighed. Plus, the cast of the tire tracks are shit. Not a match doesn't mean a damn thing. The two detectives were sitting on the couch in the Croto's living room on the afternoon of the funeral, paying their respects to the family and asking questions. Have you noticed any unusual behavior from anyone? Redwanski asked, either during the wake or the funeral. Only one person stood out, Carl Sr. said. A priest, a Franciscan friar, I think. He wore a brown robe and he was crying and moaning. Do you know his name? No, 
We've never seen him before, but I think he signed the guest book at the funeral parlor. We'll certainly check that out, Redwanski said. I'm sorry to have to ask you such a sensitive question, but what made you decide to have a closed casket at the wake? Oh, Bunny said. Father Levine recommended the casket be closed. Actually, he told my sister Betty that Danny's face was mangled. Bunny struggled to hold back tears. Father said a mother shouldn't see him that way. That's strange, Fitzy said. The major injuries were on the top and back of Danny's head, not his face. The cop frowned. The cuts, bruises, and scrapes on the boy's cheeks and forehead could have been easily covered by the mortician's makeup, and his fractured skull and jaw were invisible to the naked eye. Was there anything unusual about Danny's behavior? Redwanski asked. Recently, I mean. Bunny brought up the incident from the week before, when Danny got lost in Chicopee. She'd been worried that night, too, until Father Levine telephoned and asked if Danny could spend the night. Would it be unusual for him to sleep over Father Levine's parents' house? Not at all, Bunny shook her head. All our sons have spent the night there. How often would you say Danny and Father Levine saw each other? Oh, maybe two or three times a month, usually on weekends. Sometimes he'd stay over at the rectory or, or Father's parents' house. Uh-huh, Redwanski said and scribbled in his notebook. And then he and Fitzy exchanged looks. During school vacation, Bunny said, they spend a lot more time together. Danny's gone camping and even up to Vermont with father. She smiled at the memories all our boys have. The cops have it out for me, Father Levine said into the phone. Always have. They don't like my anti-war homilies and how I frequently brought up incidents of police brutality in Springfield. That's why they're treating me like a suspect. Have they been sniffing around over there? No said his friend on the other end of the line, a priest stationed at a neighboring Chicopee parish. Not that I'm aware of. Good, Father Levine said. A couple detectives had visited the St. Mary's rectory that morning, asking to search his second-floor bedroom. Fortunately, the pastor sent them away. Also, the chancery called and ordered Father Levine to stay in the rectory until further notice. From their line of questioning, it was obvious the police suspected him of murdering Danny, wanting his alibi for the night Danny disappeared, asking how much time he'd spent with the boy, staring at him with suspicious eyes, especially the Irish cop. Fitzgibbon, the priest could tell, didn't believe a word he said. No, I didn't know Danny, but the news of the boy's death moved me deeply said Father Barnabas Keck, the priest with the long brown robe that Carl Sr. had mentioned. That's why he attended the boy's wake, the priest told State Trooper Jim Mitchell during an interview at the St. Francis Center Chapel, located in downtown Springfield. And that's the reason he thumbtacked a newspaper story about the discovery of Danny's body to an otherwise empty bulletin board behind his desk. Father Keck served as the chief confessor for the St. Francis Center, the chapel where many diocesan priests, including Father Levine, went to receive the sacrament of confession. Father Keck denied hearing any confessions related to Danny's death, and while he'd heard of Father Levine, Keck said he didn't know him personally. Of course, he could have been lying. Didn't matter, though. In Massachusetts, priests cannot be compelled 
to disclose secrets revealed in the confessional, so Father Keck wouldn't be talking anytime soon. When I was an altar boy, Father Levine gave me alcohol and... The Springfield teenager paused while telling his story to Fitzy and Trooper Mitchell. The boy was nervous, scared, ashamed. And I spent the night upstairs at the rectory at St. Mary's, and Father Levine, Father Levine fondled me. The two cops exchanged glances. They'd been asking around in the week since Danny's funeral, and this young man, on the verge of tears, confirmed their suspicions. Father Levine was a pedophile, a child-molesting priest. After the sleepovers, the teenager continued, he'd insist we go to confession downtown at the St. Francis Center. Do you remember which priest heard your confession? Trooper Mitchell asked. No, the young man said. The confessional in the chapel is a booth. I never saw his face. Hello, Bunny said, answering the phone on the afternoon of May 2nd. 17 days after Danny's body was found floating in the Chicopee River. It's Father Levine, the priest said. Under the circumstances, it would be best if I didn't come around for now. Then, without another word, Father Levine hung up. Bunny was baffled. Why was their devoted friend and spiritual advisor suddenly abandoning them? On this of all days... That morning, the state crime lab released Danny's blood alcohol test results, 0.18%, nearly twice the legal limit for adults. How had Danny gotten so drunk, Bunny wondered, and who gave him the booze? The next day, another state police laboratory report was delivered to Fitzy and his team. It stated that human blood was detected on the following evidence collected at the scene. Danny's beige suede jacket, Danny's brown corduroy pants, soil taken from the riverbank where Danny had been dragged, soil taken from a spot near the tire tracks, a random piece of paper found on the riverbank, and a line item simply referred to as stones. The blood on all these objects was discerned to be type O. Danny's blood type. A short length of cotton rope and a plastic drinking straw found on the riverbank also had signs of human blood. Type B. That was the blood type of Father Richard Levine. Much of the blood evidence from the crime scene could not be tested using 1972 technology. According to the lab report, quote, putrefaction precluded tests. You're probably wondering why I wanted to speak to each one of your boys individually, Fitzy said to the Crotos, but I have some bad news you might have trouble believing. They were sitting in the living room of the house on Ferncliff Ave a couple days after the crime lab results came in. Fitzy had just finished interviewing the fourth Croto son. Three of the boys admitted to being molested by Father Levine, and the detective's intuition told him that Danny had been molested as well. We have reason to believe that Father Levine murdered your son. Fitzy paused to let the words sink in. He's the prime suspect, actually the only suspect. Carl and Bunny were more than shocked, incredulous, devastated, destroyed. How could their trusted friend be accused of such a heinous crime? 
Fitzy went on to explain that Father Levine was a child molester, a serial molester with many possible victims. Danny was murdered, Fitzy's theory went, because the boy threatened to expose Levine's sins. Carl and Bunny sat motionless, stunned silent. The detective then spoke to Carl Jr., who stood in the doorway to the kitchen. Remember that weird phone call on the day of Danny's wake? Fitzy asked. Is there a chance the voice was Father Levine? Yes, it could have been him, Carl Jr. said. I mean, the voice felt very familiar, although it was disguised like he was speaking through a handkerchief. It was a little after 4 a.m., three weeks after Danny's murder, when Father Levine arrived at the house of a friend, a woman we'll call Peggy Montague. Good morning, Father, she said, climbing into the priest's red Mustang. Now, what's so urgent to talk about at four in the morning? I'm going to prove to you that I'm innocent, the priest said, backing out of the driveway, because I'm about to be considered a suspect in the murder of Danny Croto. Oh, my goodness! Peggy said, shocked. There's not a chance in the world you'd do such a thing. I mean, you're such good friends with the family. Well, you know that, and I know that, but the cops have it out for me. He looked into the rearview mirror, or at least most of the cops. He looked at Peggy. You're about to meet someone that can clear this whole thing up. This is where we're meeting him, the priest said, taking a right turn into the parking lot of a diner. Once inside and seated, they ordered coffee. I still don't understand. How could they think that you'd do such a thing? I know, said Levine. That's why I wanted to prove it to you. Oh, oh, good. Here he comes. Peggy looked up at the man suddenly standing in front of them. He was about six foot tall with light brown hair, average looking, in his 40s. Peggy, I'd like to introduce you to a friend of mine, the priest said, and then mumbled a name she didn't hear. They shook hands. Then the man took out his wallet, flashed a badge, and called himself a detective. We're either looking for a green van or a green pickup truck with Connecticut plates, the man said. It was seen in the area where Danny Croto was murdered, he pointed at Father Levine. We're going to find it and prove that you had nothing to do with the murder. See, the priest said, putting his hand on Peggy's forearm. I never doubted you, Father, she answered. The alleged detective prattled on for another minute or two about the green vehicle, but Peggy couldn't concentrate on what he was saying. She was so upset. Peggy and her husband had been friends with the priest since he arrived at St. Mary's the year before. He was so supportive and kind. There was no doubt in her mind that Father Levine was innocent. How could anyone accuse the priest of such a horrible crime? Fitzy had found the conversations with the Croto boys very enlightening. First of all, three of Danny's brothers confirmed that Father Levine was a serial child molester. Also, the brothers told the detective that the priest had given them alcohol on many occasions. Furthermore, one of the boys explained how Father Levine had brought him to the spot under the bridge a couple years before. The circumstantial evidence was enough to convince Fitzy that Father Levine had killed the boy. But since he lacked physical proof and eyewitnesses, the detective knew it would be impossible to convince District Attorney Matty Ryan to pursue a murder case against the priest. Ryan was a devout Catholic and a close pal of Bishop Christopher J. Weldon. Father Levine's alleged holiness didn't mean a damn thing to Fitzy. 
It drove him crazy that the church was protecting the son of a bitch. Like when the detectives were turned away from searching Levine's room at the rectory, if the priest had been an ordinary schlub, a judge would have issued a search warrant for his living quarters and his car, even his parents' house, since it was known that Danny stayed there the week before the murder. The time for that sort of evidence gathering, though, was long past. A different tactic was needed. A sit-down, Fitzy believed, with some of the higher-ups at the diocese. Put all his cards on the table. He wanted them to know they had a very evil apple in their tree. Fitzy decided he would tell church officials about the multiple allegations of child molestation by Father Levine. How the priest spent lots of time alone with Danny, but lied about the relationship. He'd tell them about the frequent sleepovers and Father Levine's history of feeding booze to young boys, the Friday night pickup at Mrs. Bobbick's house, and how Father Levine visited the crime scene the day after the murder and the odd questions he asked during his initial police interview. Fitzy hoped the diocese would see how the facts pointed to Father Levine. Then, perhaps, the church would stop protecting the priest and allow justice to prevail. And in conclusion, that's why we believe Father Levine to be the prime suspect in the murder of Danny Croto, Fitzy said, standing in front of a half dozen black suits and Roman collars. I'll do my best to answer any questions you may have. The detective went quiet, so the group of high-ranking priests sitting around a long table in the diocesan headquarters could process the details they'd just heard. Would you be so kind to wait in the anteroom? One of the priests asked so we can discuss this information. Fitzy didn't have to wait long. When summoned back, the message was clear. They didn't believe a fellow priest and spiritual brother could be guilty of such a heinous crime. However, in light of the detective's disclosure, their churchman proposed a lie detector test so Father Levine could clear his name. Did you strike Danny Croto's head to cause his death? the polygraph examiner asked. This was the first of the five agreed-upon questions for the priest. No, Father Levine answered. A pair of diocesan lawyers and a trio of detectives stood in a Boston office and watched as the machine's pens scribbled in response. It was a week after Fitzy's sit-down with church officials, and while the lie detector wasn't admissible in court, at least it was something. Did you kill Danny Croto? No. Were you present when Danny Croto was killed? No. Did you dump Danny's body in the Chicopee River? No. Do you know who killed Danny Croto? No. An hour later, a summary of the polygraph results was given to the cops and lawyers due to, quote, erratic and inconsistent responses by Levine. The examiner found it impossible to render an opinion on the priest's truthfulness. A week later, Levine and church lawyers flew to Chicago for two more polygraph tests. The same questions were asked, and the priest gave the same answers. This time, though, examiners gave Levine a passing grade. Case closed as far as the church was concerned. So Levine returned to his priestly duties, safe from the detective's reach and handcuffs. I've said it before and I'll say it again, District Attorney Matty Ryan told Carl Sr. 
There's not a jury in Massachusetts that would convict a Catholic priest of murder, especially not based upon the amount of evidence presented to me thus far, and definitely not without an eyewitness. Carl, tired of hearing the same spiel over and over, sighed loudly. He and Bunny missed their son so much. Their sorrow haunted them at all times. The family and the detectives and many others were totally convinced Father Levine was getting away with murder. Word on the street was that Bishop Christopher Weldon advised Matty Ryan to back off, and Ryan, being a good Catholic, did exactly as he was told. How about charging him for molesting all those poor kids, Carl asked. The DA's answer was even more confounding. An arrest for sex crimes could possibly interfere with the open murder investigation. Besides, it'd be tough, Ryan insisted, to get altar boys to come forward on the record to testify against a beloved parish priest. There were no alternative suspects, as far as Fitzy was concerned. In the days following the murder, investigators had looked at and cleared a couple other fellows. The produce manager at the A&P, for instance. He and Danny were pals, and he supposedly paid the boy 10 bucks to paint his bedroom. And there had been a whisper campaign against Danny's scoutmaster. Both men, police decided, had legit alibis. As for the reports of various, quote, queers in cars, who possibly might have lured Danny into a vehicle and seduced him with booze, no one mentioned to the cops that Danny had a relationship with any of the neighborhood perverts. And as Fitzy well knew, the actual risk of stranger danger or random homicide was tiny. The vast majority of murders were committed by someone well known to the victim, someone with a motive, opportunity, and means. As for the phone call to the Crotos trying to cast blame on the teenage circle gang, that was a crude attempt at distraction. Fitzy was convinced Father Levine made the call. Danny's brothers, who'd been with the priest at the Eastfield Mall that day, said Father Levine disappeared for five or ten minutes around the time of the anonymous call. Also, the circle gang theory didn't pass a straight face test. If the circle gang killed Danny, why did they commit the murder under the bridge on the Chicopee River over five miles from their home turf and 16 acres? Plus, it was highly unlikely that a group of suburban Springfield teenagers could keep the murder secret. Surely, by now, there'd be some gossip or a squealer, but there wasn't. Thanks to Danny's brother's account, Fitzy knew Father Levine had a connection to the spot under the bridge and he knew the priest spent lots of time with the Circle Gang kids while stationed at St. Catherine of Siena. In fact, Father Levine was a minor character in The Circle, the novel by James Coleman, published in 1970, a couple years before Danny's murder. Thinly veiled as Father Ravine in the book, his character was a priest popular with parish youth, but not so beloved by old priests who found it strange that, quote, he likes kids so much, there must be something wrong with him. Fitzy knew these details didn't matter to a DA like Matty Ryan. Unless dramatic new evidence emerged, like an eyewitness, the case would go cold. And Father Levine 
would never be charged with Danny's murder. And most likely, he'd continue to sexually assault more altar boys, which made Fitzy angry and very sad. Devils and Dirtbags is written and produced by me, Crash Berry. Theme song by Dave Gutter. Editorial assistance by Chris Busby and Brian Fitzgerald. Visit devilsanddirtbags.com for source material and top-secret memos. And to learn about my books, movie, and my other journalism, or to send me an email. Next time on Devils and Dirtbags. Flash forward to 1986. Father Richard Levine is now the pastor of St. Joseph's in the village of Shelburne Falls, Massachusetts, 45 miles north of Springfield. In the decade and a half since Danny's murder, the priest served in the following Western Mass parishes, St. Mary's in East Springfield, St. Thomas in the town of Palmer, and St. Francis in North Adams. Then he was transferred to St. Joe's, where after a couple years as assistant pastor, he was finally awarded the top job. And due to a priest shortage, he was also responsible for two mission churches, St. John's in the town of Coleraine and St. Christopher's in the town of Charlemont, which gave Father Levine plenty of opportunities to select, groom, and molest scores of altar boys. During Father Levine's time at St. Joe's, a conservative Catholic cult consisting of several families bought a 200-acre farm near Shelburne Falls. The group had recently been banished from Connecticut by the bishop after a newspaper story revealed that the cult's now-dead founder claimed to be Jesus' twin brother and preached of a coming apocalypse. Even more peculiar was the leader's secret ritual— reserved for a select group of 24 men that involved masturbation, oral sex, and the swallowing of sperm as a way to get closer to the Lord. The cult's new leader had apparently renounced the old ways and the sex magic. However, this leader had a 13-year-old son who caught Father Levine's eye.